Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Consulting, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. This is Eric Willett, Managing Director, and if you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies, all seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. For today's episode, we thought we would try something a little different and share the audio from one of our recent monthly roundup webinars. In this recording, I spoke with managing directors Charlie Hewlett and Joshua Bourne about our management consulting practice and how we think about the integration of the big stories about market-wide macro trends and the small stories about company-specific nuances and competitive advantages. This paradigm is one we return to again and again in crafting innovative portfolio and organizational strategies. Please enjoy the special rebroadcast. And as always, thank you for listening. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome back to the RCLCO monthly roundup webinar. As we march towards the end of 2021, start to enter the holiday season with Thanksgiving now only a couple weeks away, the RCLCO team wants to thank you for continuing to join us on a monthly basis and for your ongoing participation in support of our webinar series this year. Today's topic is going to be heavily conversational. I think we're in for a real treat as we discuss enterprise level opportunities and challenges and how RCLCO strategic planning and management consulting services can support your organizational thinking. While many of you know us for our real estate economics and market research capabilities, we also have a particular expertise in enterprise strategy with a real estate only focus. Our discussion today is gonna to dig into this specialty uh, with an emphasis on how the big stories, things like what's impacting the industry, need to be considered in tandem with small stories for what makes companies unique. As a reminder, I'm Josh Bourne, a managing director at RCLCO, and I'll be the moderator for today's session. Joining me is the leadership from our management consulting and strategic planning group, Charlie Hewitt and Eric Willett. Charlie's been a frequent presenter on our webinars, and we're glad to have him back. While well, we also are here to introduce Eric to our audience. With that in mind, let's jump right into it and let's get started. There's lots to cover. Eric, I'll kick it over to you. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about what keeps you busy day in, day out at, in this part of our practice? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Josh. Excited to, to be here and having this conversation with you and Charlie this morning. So our management consulting offerings, as you described, are a critical part of our full-service solutions for the real estate industry. At its core, what our team does on a daily basis is helping real estate organizations build better platforms. Right? We're devoted to thinking at the enterprise level about how real estate organizations, whether it's owners, investors, developers, can enhance their operations, enhance their portfolios, and, and develop platforms to support their business. That usually starts with big picture strategy, big picture strategy planning about where a company wants to go. But it can involve everything from portfolio rebalancing to capital raising strategies to organizational restructures. Over the years, as we've done this with um, hundreds of companies, we found that this inside-out approach that our management consulting team brings is a very help, a really helpful complement to the top-down perspective that our investment advisory business brings, and then of course the bottom-up perspective that our real estate economics team brings to projects. A good summary, and, and appreciate that. I think it's a good background for anyone who doesn't know the firm as well. Charlie, you you know as well as anybody that the real estate business is as heavily transactional, and it's a transactional based industry. Why have you found, given your time in this space, uh, why have you found it important that companies really think about strategy? 
Thanks, Josh. Well, first of all, let me welcome Eric back into the RCLCO fold. Eric went and had a little stint with some other company, which we won't uh, mention, but realized that he missed us uh, so much and that it was so exciting that he had to come back. So uh, welcome back. We're glad to have you back in the the fold. What are we talking about? Strategy? Yeah, strategy. Well, uh, so uh, I think it's important to recognize that um, every company has a strategy, right? It's, It's really just a matter of whether it's intentional and whether it's born out of a conscious uh, consensus among the leadership and and uh, others in the organization about uh, the direction in which uh, the company's um, headed. Here at RCLCO, uh, we have developed and continued to perfect a strategy planning process uh, that has, I think, a great track record of, of positive impact for commercial real estate companies. And um, it, the the theory is that a well-rounded strategy, right, is built on here's here's where the part the, the meme comes in is built on a foundation uh, of uh, mission, vision, and core values. Increasingly, uh, that includes um, dealing with um, ESG uh, as 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 part of a, a real estate's articulation of its of its vision and its goals. Um, identifying uh, key goals and then metrics for defining what success looked like, so that you can define uh, success and and measure progress as as you're going along. It is informed under an umbrella, right, of a SWOT analysis and a point of view of what's happening in both the internal company environment as well as the uh, external uh, market conditions. And then uh, the strategy has uh, each one of these pillars, as we call them, working from left to right. So we talk about industry roles. That's what the company does. Um, what businesses it's in, um, what real estate products and sec- uh, customer segments it's in, growth and geographic deployment sounds what it you know, sounds very logical, right? How is the company going to grow, um, and what does the geographic footprint look like for its various businesses and sectors? Customer and brand strategy is about adding value to internal and external customers and deciding what investment and return on investment you're you're going to uh, have in developing your company's brand, which dovetails nicely with competitive advantage, which is really the critical core competencies that an organization needs to have in the future in order to win the game. Um, Efficiency and profitability has sort of two dimensions. One is making sure that the company is uh, driving as much top-line revenue as it possibly can and getting into the mind share and wallet share of its customers, Um, and then making sure that uh, it is driving as much of that top-line revenue down to the bottom line by focusing on efficiency and and effectiveness uh, strategies. Organization, again, what it sounds like, it's about organization structure, but it's also about compensation. Uh, It's about governance, um, decision-making. Succession planning is, is a big issue that comes up in that pillar. Capital is all about how you fund the strategy. Um, And then risk management is not only about uh, dealing with economic and real estate market cycles, but also creating resiliency in the organization to deal with um, unintended uh, consequences. And then lastly, the last pillar you see on the right is implementation. So when we talk about strategy, strategy is what a company does and where, right? It's a place-based business, but how it executes its strategy is really the last pillar, which is implementation. And so the pillars have been arranged very purposely from left to right so that you don't start with constraints in mind, right? We can't possibly consider going to XYZ market because we don't have anyone in the organization who knows Denver, or we can't do that particular business or that particular segment because we don't have the capital today. No, no, no. You start with what is the opportunity in the marketplace? 
What are the competitive advantages that you bring to the table? How can you get yourself into that flow of the business and capture a share of that business? And then you design organization, you design capital um, to go after those business. And it is you know, a, 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 a iterative process, right? You could get into a conversation about growth and geographic deployment and find that you bitten off more than you can chew. And so you might need to rationalize that ambition. Fine, but you don't start with those constraints. So that's just an overview of, of the process. There's really kind of three stages that you go through. One is a situation analysis where you're dealing with the roof of the Parthenon. Uh, and then you go down into uh, the various pillars in the second stage and, and go through the formulation stage of strategy. And then finally, term to implementation. So that's kind of a very brief overview and a round trip of the RCO code strategy planning approach. I would add that inherent in every strategy planning process is making tough decisions, right? It, it's it's about trade-offs and, and figuring out what works and doesn't work. And this process we found over the years has been an, a, a very structured and, and analytically based way to evaluate those trade-offs for an organization as they're considering challenging decisions like which markets to go into, right? This is not just a, you know, do I want to or do I not? It's what, what would this involve? What's the cost of this and, and whether that makes sense? And that might be a good transition to, to dig a little deeper into kind of the headline here. I know, Eric, you recently wrote our advisory this week, which tagged along nicely with this webinar about big stories installed, small stories, things that's obviously what we chatted about here in the intro. Why don't you kind of take it away from there and give us a little bit of an update on what that means and what, you, what you're thinking when you talk through that? Sure. So the big story, small stories framework is one we're returning to again and again with clients. We find that it's a helpful tool to think about this relationship between the world in which we're operating and the realities of every individual organization. It's, it's not rocket science. The big stories are these big macro trends that are occurring and defining the future of the real estate sector as a whole. Right? These often have a direction. They often have winners and losers, whether that's technology, real estate, capital markets, You know, the evolution of these big picture ideas. And Inherent in that is that they're bigger than any single owner or any single operator, but they're important to every single owner or every single operator. On the other hand, the small stories are those stories that are really unique to any individual company. These are about the needs, the wants, and the abilities of every organization. And so when we go into a strategy planning process, it's really about finding the resonance, the alignment, and the successful integration of both the big and the small stories. All too often, we're um, engaged with clients that have focused perhaps too much on one, like they prioritized one, either the big stories or the small stories at the expense of the other. So it could be a company that's chasing big investment trends without an awareness and an understanding of their own competitive advantage and how that relates. Or on the other side, groups that are too focused on the here and the now, as Charlie was saying, too focused on the constraints. Um, and that prevents them from thinking broadly about how they can um, how they can tap into these market evolutions that are really important to appreciate. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And with all things RCL, we try to approach it with a framework. I think this framework is a really interesting one. Um, maybe we jump into a little bit, since we spent a lot of time on these things, what are you seeing here from uh, the big story perspective? Let's start there. Sure. So, you know, I, I think one of the big stories we talk a lot about and, and um, you know, uh, Charlie often quips, demographics is destiny. And I think big demographic shifts are a really important one that we spend a lot of time thinking. I know um, this demographic trends can create real tailwinds for certain portfolio strategies and for um, real estate investors. It's important to understand the directionality of those demographic trends. So things we've talked about a lot um, internally include the aging 
um, the aging of America, right? Both because of the boomer and the millennial cohorts. Those are two distinct large demographic, um, large demographic cohorts that are moving into a separate life stage, whether it's retirement, of course, for the boomers or into more middle-aged family formation for the millennials. And that's having real implications, particularly on the residential side. Other demographic trends include the shift towards the Sun Belt in terms of gravitational pull. You know, I know Charlie and I have worked on a number of projects where people have, you know, been been evaluating geographies um, and the realities of this demographic shift show up in the data, right, in terms of the market performance. Um, and so for a lot of companies, it's about thinking through where to pivot the portfolio to, to at least draft behind these demographic trends, because it's a lot easier to draft behind them to, to, than to fight them frontally. Charlie, anything that you're seeing as well that you might want to add from the big picture or big story side of things? Well, for for me, I think uh, there's there's probably there's probably two big stories that that rise to uh, to the level of importance in in our strategy work. I think the first one is the um, institutionalization of, of capital, together with the widespread availability of uh, and transparency of information and data uh, that continues to professionalize the commercial real estate industry. Um, so that's a um, that's a positive that's a positive trend, um, but a challenging one for some small to mid-sized you know, entrepreneurial companies that are finding themselves at a competitive disadvantage, particularly when it comes to access uh, to and cost of, of capital. And we don't need to uh, talk too much about the fact that this is a very capital-intensive uh, industry. No surprise there. Uh, the other big story for me is the confluence of real estate and technology, big data, artificial intelligence, and, and the impact that this is having on commercial uh, real estate. I think you know, big companies and small are having to come to terms with this um, and figure out where on the leading edge versus the bleeding edge uh, of technology that they want to play. Um, and you know, I think the investments in um, in, in some of these uh, innovative uh, you know, platforms and systems and information systems can be significant. And there's probably two camps that are evolving out there. You know, one camp says, well, you know, given those costs, uh, only very large companies with scale are going to be able to play. Um, and be um, uh, effective in deploying technology in, in their companies. And, and the other camp, which I, you know, is maybe a minority camp, but I think a growing one, is that, um, that a lot of these technology uh, you know, innovations are going to enable smaller companies to behave like big companies. Um, and so there may be a, a democratization of, of technology. Uh, I'm not sure uh, which way it's actually going to end up working, but maybe a little bit of both. But I'm probably in the camp that says scale is going to become increasingly important in the real estate industry as, as technology and information becomes much more important in executing the business. I think the technology is a great example also of the directionality of this trend and that there's a clear evolution, right? And so when we look back at the ways technology has changed the real estate companies we're working with, the big evolution over the last 15 years has been particularly in customer-facing technology, right? That's been, been the big shift. But this direction, if you think about where this arrow is pointing, it's towards technology integration across the platform, right? So we, we first saw this perhaps with asset management platforms um, and, and kind of the back end of property management. 
management, and then in customer-facing technology, whether that's in um, you know a remote concierge or you know remote viewing for leasing an apartment, whatever the case may be, um, you know technology-mediated customer experience. Now we're continuing on that evolution as technology gets integrated with with throughout an organization's key processes, right? And so we're working with companies that have adopted technology as part of their underwriting um, approach, right? Um, that is now a key part of the investment decision as well. And we, uh, you know, moving forward, I think for every company, it's about considering how do we stretch that technology forward across our, our verticals, as opposed to just going deep in one vertical, like, you know, cons- uh, consumer facing technology, for instance. That makes sense. And I think uh, it looks like at least one question or a few folks thinking the same thing, which is sort of, how has COVID and what's happened in the last year and a half kind of changed those big picture stories and what you're thinking about technology being a, an easy one, right? Has that accelerated the adoption of technology in real estate accelerated because of that? Curious if you've seen some differences from before and after and, and what we're looking at now for our clients. Well, we, we talk a lot about uh, the impact that, that COVID has had and will likely have in the future. You, I think you said it, Josh, right? I think the, the pandemic has been, you know, the the great accelerator. Uh, uh, work from anywhere, WFA, uh, e-commerce penetration, um, a focus on experience over uh, material gain, right? It's not about the stuff. Um, and and those are those are trends that were absolutely in place uh, before the pandemic. Um, they were accelerated in the pandemic, and they will continue to evolve and perhaps at an accelerated pace. So that has a big impact on both the location and the demand for certain commercial real estate sectors. You know, think office, think retail, think hospitality. Um, uh, you know, and and in terms of location, I mean, I'm a firm believer that you know our our center cities are not going to empty out. Um, right, that the things that made these locations compelling and attractive, particularly to to young uh, people entering the workforce, are still going to be in place in a post pandemic environment. And five years from now, when we have this under control, this you know we'll have the gee, remember twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one kind of conversations. But at the same time, and this circles back to what Eric just was talking about, demographics is destiny. Uh, you know, we do have the leading edge of the millennials now entering that life stage of home ownership. And um, many of them um, are actually looking um, and use the pandemic uh, as, as the nudge to get them out, out of their uh, urban studio and begin to look for larger uh, apartments or purchase homes uh, in, in more suburban locations. So I think it's a both and story that both of uh, both our center cities um, are urbanizing uh, suburban locations and our suburbs are all going to experience uh, growth. So I think that's a, a positive post-COVID spin. A hundred percent agree. And I, some of the research we've completed on migration has shown that 85 to 90% of moves actually ended within a hundred miles of the origin, right? So for people who are leaving the center cities, they're moving to the suburbs of that city, right? Like kind of the, the, the outer line suburbs as opposed to people moving from Los Angeles, where I'm based, through all the way to to you know Idaho. Although there are some of that, it's it, it's not a, a large percentage. On on the bigger picture, though, I, I really want to underscore this, Charlie, because I think the point you made is a good one, um, and it really highlights the importance of these mega trends, right? Even in the face of this once in a lifetime disruption, right? This incredible economic 
you know, temporary, albeit, but, but incredible economic restructuring and, you know, a radical change in our daily lives. Despite all that, these mega trends that are defining the future of the commercial real estate industry continued, right? And I think it, it really underscores and highlights the importance of these mega trends and the importance then, of course, of, of companies recognizing them and building strategies that, um, that intersect with those mega trends. Well, and I think those mega trends and big trends are, are clearly compelling and, and extremely important, but we also have to talk about how the smaller stories fit in with that as well. Uh, Charlie, I don't know if you want to maybe share a little bit there and, and to talk about the juxtaposition between the two. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, so every commercial real estate company is, is facing the same macro level trends, right? But those are the big stories. But the small stories, um, you know, really revolve around a particular company's point of view um, and what they plan to do about it in, in, in the context of their strategy. So, you know, strategy is really about um, identifying those things that can um, unlock competitive advantage for your organization and, and, and enable you to prevail in a, uh, a very crowded and competitive marketplace. Um, and so that is thinking about, you know, what are the what are the skill sets? What are the what are the assets? What are the capabilities that your firm needs to have in order to be successful. And you'll remember that there's a there's a whole pillar dedicated to really defining what competitive advantage means, how you're going to um, how you're actually going to measure that and how you're going to actually either maintain critical core competencies that you already have um, and shore up the ones uh, that you've identified where you you, you need to get better uh, into the future. So, um, so that's the thing that really, um, I, I think is fundamental in discussing kind of the small stories. Um, and it's about industry roles, right? What are you, what are you going to do and what are you not going to do in, in terms of businesses or products and segments? And, and I think it's an, it's an, an important point that I make in every single boardroom is, you know, strategy is as much about identifying what you're not going to do as it is identifying what you're going to do, right? So that the whole team is rowing in the same direction. When a potential investment or opportunity comes across the proverbial desk, you can put a screen over it very quickly and say, is this something that's worth my time or not? Hey, wait a minute, guys. Remember, we said we're not going to do student housing or we're not going to do condominiums, for, you know, and we had very good reasons for saying that. So don't bring me those opportunities. So that, that can help with efficiency and productivity as you're executing your business. Um, geographic footprint, which we've talked about, um, what is the rationale for that? I think uh, too often we find ourselves in conversations about uh, a company's geographic footprint and the grass always seems to be greener outside of the markets in which you're currently uh, active. Um, and, and we're always having you know, a, a, a lively debate about the fact that it is much more efficient and effective and less risky to do more of what you're currently doing where you're already doing it. So market penetration should really be the primary strategy um, that a company should focus on in the real estate space. And then think about, um, you know, where you are banging up against constraints of the market, market share or opportunity set. Then and only then do you think about taking your show on the road and going to the new market. Because you have to acknowledge that that is a higher risk profile. You're going to pay the dumb tax. You don't have the network, so on and so forth. So, again, you know, kind of thinking through the rationale of what is your geographic footprint um, and uh, it is, is important. And then the organization structure. 
Um, I hate to call them small stories because they're all very important. Uh, and again, talking about reporting lines and structure, um, you know, the, the the relationship between uh, you know decision making, board governance, uh, and the management team. Very often, we're dealing with multi generational family run real estate organizations um, that tend to run out of family leaders somewhere around Gen three. I don't know why that is. Gen three, Gen four. Um, people seem to lose interest. And so making that transition between family uh, ownership and guidance to family oversight of quote unquote professional management and going through that the learning curve of how to make that work um, is an important um, issue. And then we talk about you know, succession planning um, as well, which is again, another important issue that a lot of real estate companies are facing, particularly now that we've got, you know, I'm, the, I'm, I'm sort of the tail end of the, of the baby boom, uh, baby boomers, um, but a lot of businesses, a lot of uh, owners and founders of companies are you know about to reach retirement age, and so there's going to be a lot of turnover of ownership um, and leadership in a lot of real estate companies. So succession planning uh, takes on increased importance, um, I think, over the next five to ten years. Yeah, and uh, I think you're timely with the succession planning. It's I know it's been a, a hot topic in real estate Twitter land these days as well. And there's all this discussion. You know, you spend your life uh, building up a portfolio only for your grandkids to sell it off, right? So that's that's sort of the running joke, uh, Eric. Why don't we jump into a little bit more on the small story side and how they tie into those big mega trends? But what sort of small story actually matters and moves the needle as it relates to strategic plans? I think Charlie touched on some of them, but we'd love to maybe even have some examples from you as well. Yeah. I, I, so, as first big picture, I, I like to think in terms of the small stories as being about wants, needs, and abilities, right? So, on the wants side, it's where a company wants to go. Charlie described mission, vision, values as a key foundation for our strategy planning process. And there is ample strategic literature out there on the importance of mission-driven organizations, right? And so that's a very foundational part of understanding the small story that's unique to any company. Where do they want to go? Secondly, about needs, every company has different stakeholders, right? And as a result, have different needs, whether that's family ownership, whether that's community stakeholders, it looks different. Like Charlie was saying, we work with a lot of multi-generational family companies where the portfolio is the source of a substantial amount of the wealth for the family and is also a, a source of a great deal of the income. And as a result, the needs in terms of distributions and in terms of stability for the portfolio for that company likely differ from an organization, a smaller you know, entrepreneurial developer that's raising third-party capital, right? Like the, the needs are different. And so the strategy and the small stories that are intersecting with the strategy necessarily are different as well. And then finally, abilities, like Charlie said, strategy isn't about solving to what exists, but it is about leveraging things the company is good at, right? Including skill sets. That's oftentimes market knowledge, right? For companies that have been in a market for many, many years, um, you know, the paying the dump tax and going to, to a new market probably isn't as wise as um, pursuing a market penetration strategy. So let's make it real for a second and, and, and use a, maybe some examples that highlight this intersection of the big and the small stories. And as a, a starting point, I would say, I don't think that every company needs to be a thematic investor, right? That's very buzzy today. And, and, and certainly many of the most prominent organizations are thematic investors, partially because their small stories involve scale and involve access to capital in a way that most real estate organizations don't have. But let's talk, you know, we talked a bit about demographics and in particular, the shift towards the Sun Belt. The implication of that in our practice and in our engagements has looked very different for different types of companies. For example, for a national developer we worked with, the 
implication of that trend was to pivot resources into the Sunbelt. They had the scale and the platform that made it um, wise to, to shift resources, shift investment dollars towards Sunbelt markets in order to, to you know, pivot the portfolio and rebalance a bit towards these markets where we see these demographic trends really supporting widespread growth. But for another company, we were working with a Midwest owner operator that looked at those same trends and for them, because of their unique capital structure and their skill set in the market, they decided to double down on the high barrier, fast growing submarkets in the cities in which they had already been investing, the Midwest cities um, in which they had already been investing in for decades. Um, this was a strategy to, you know, a market penetration strategy, as Charlie was describing. It's a way to avoid the dump tax. And I think it was, frankly, a really important intersection of their unique small stories with this broader trend of where is the growth in these on the macro sense, they're less, they're, they're slower growing metros, but there is still growth in those metros. And so it was a recognition of the nuanced implications of that demographic trend. Yeah. And, and Eric, I, I agree with everything you said. You, you talked about market knowledge. I'd like to take that even a step further. I, I think companies that are really focused on understanding who their customers are, what they want and what they're willing to pay for, and then delivering that in an efficient and effective way are the companies that are going to be successful. So it really starts with customer knowledge um, before it even begins with market knowledge, right? So I, I think um, I think that's an important factor that more, more real estate companies are, are focusing on and, and building capabilities around. And that is the intersection of technology and big data and customer knowledge uh, and kind of that round trip. Uh, but, you know, there's also focus on operational excellence. Um, it, I mean, I think it used to be 10, 15, 20 years ago that, you know, without uh, without a lot of transparency, th there were great opportunities to be had because the markets were inefficient. Today, I think we have to assume that most, most markets are extremely efficient and very transparent. And so it's going to be hard to steal an asset or you know uh, steal land for new development and you're going to have to compete and in order to compete you're going to need to have in access to capital and you're going to have to have operational excellence and so i think the companies that can understand their customers and then deliver uh, on the brand promise to those customers are the ones that are going to be successful going forward yeah, absolutely agree. And I think we've seen some interesting examples where companies have recognized their competitive advantage is customer knowledge and have built a strategy around that. You know, for example, multifamily organizations that understand who their renter base is and have realized that there is increasing interest in newer products like single family residential, right? Uh, or single family rental rather. Um, and, and have um, as a result embraced that customer knowledge and knowing that that's where their strength is and have been able to build expanding platforms um, from that point. Yeah, I think these are great examples of where you see the big and the small working together and crafting different strategies that work for individual organizations. Uh, and as we open the Q&A, and again, I'll remind our audience, please feel free to shoot over your questions. But one thing maybe we haven't touched on is how are we working or where have you seen examples of companies where the megatrends and the unique or smaller stories actually might be in conflict? And then how do we work through that or how do we typically think through that? Sure. So, uh, you know, I'll jump back to the, the big story that Charlie mentioned briefly, although we didn't dive into it at the beginning of the institutionalization of the real estate markets and specifically of real estate capital markets. Increasingly, we see organizations on this pathway, um, kind of this, this ladder growth of, you know, 
early sourcing money from uh, friends and family, country club equity, then moving into more of a kind of a fund-based model, maybe some small JVs, and then you know you raise another fund from there. And we've worked with a number of companies that have moved along that progression, right? And, and as part of that, there's an implication for professionalization of reporting, professionalization of operations, and all of that is this secular trend that we've seen throughout the industry as, you know, starting in the 1990s with the early REIT era, you know, stretching to today with some iterations, um, iterations along the way. But that story doesn't mean that the strategy, the capital strategy for every organization is the same, right? Far from it. An example would be of, of where these two maybe come in conflict a bit is we were working with a group out of the East Coast. Again, this was a, a second generation or a third generation um, family organization that had had a great deal of success raising capital for one-off um, for one-off opportunities from their their network of friends and family, right, um, and, and from country club equity. And, and the great news about it is that that money for them and, and how they had structured it was quite favorable, right. And so as we looked at their strategy going forward, given their growth objectives, it didn't make sense for them to kind of move further along that that ladder in terms of the capital progression, right? They, they had a very good, they built a good capital raising mousetrap um, and it was worth reinvesting in that and continuing down that path and cornering, cornering and penetrating that market more for sure, but, um, but, but getting in, you know, but sticking in that um, ball game, so to speak. Um, of course, that comes at the expense of scale to some extent and, and there are other implications for the strategy from there. But I think that was an interesting example of where there's this recognition that there's this broader market evolution happening, but it doesn't always mean that that you know the company itself has to adapt exactly in the same way to that to that big story. Yeah, I think I think that's a good example. Uh, you know, re- real estate at its core um, is a balancing act between uh, uh, you know, creating value um, and managing risk. And so, um, you know, I think everyone everyone believes that we, for the next two or three years, you can't really see much beyond that, right? That uh, the wind is going to be at our collective backs. And again, it depends, you know, it varies by market, by sector, but, you know, generally, um, you know, the economic winds are going to be uh, blowing favorably. And so, a lot of real estate companies have to wrestle with how to capture uh, that favorable market condition, how to how to grow, right? Because a company that isn't growing is dying, is, is the old adage, and then managing the risk of getting overextended. Um, and so, a lot of conversations that we're having uh, with companies is, you know, we can see a clear path to managing this amount of business or this throughput through the organization. But we remember the great financial crisis, and that was really painful, and we don't want to go through that again. So let's figure out a way to outsource uh, capacity above a certain run rate um, to others with either with uh, joint ventures or by you know hiring uh, you know other execution capability, so that we don't bulk up our staff so much that come 2025 uh, when the markets may be turning against us once again, right? Six cycles have not been banished. You know, we don't find ourselves in a position where we have to accordion the staff back down again. So I think that's a big lesson learned uh, in a conflict that most management teams and board board members are wrestling with is what's that healthy tension between capturing the growth that's available and, and not creating too much overexposure and overhead risk um, when things cool off, which they will inevitably. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of those groups also are still, you know, thinking of GFC and, and 07, 08 and what happened then, which and are trying to avoid that sort of, um, you know, that cycle again or going through the same issue. And Charlie, I think you touched on a couple of things. I mean, you spend 
a lot of time in boardrooms and dealing with senior leadership and C-suite. I mean, this sounds like one example of that, but what else are you hearing when you're in these boardrooms? What's keeping these, these executives for real estate organizations up at night? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the near and present uh, issues on everyone's mind is you know is um, inflation. You know, we we heard in the late spring and 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 early summer uh, this is going to be temporary. Um, hasn't proved to be all that temporary, and and I think it's really a question. I think I think most most real estate executives uh, it may be more hope than believe, but hope and believe that um, that supply chain issues. Um, will correct themselves over time, but it's having a huge impact on, on the the industry right now. And the second thing is, um, in addition to being the great accelerator, the the COVID pandemic was the great resignation. Right, <laughs> that's the other term that's being thrown out there, and it is really really challenging for real estate companies to hire quality uh, staff to execute um, their business. And, and that's up and down the organization, but it's being felt most acutely in areas like in construction um, and in uh, you know, property operations, um, accounting, uh, HR, um, those kinds of eh, commodity um, uh, you know, uh, types of positions. I hate to, uh, to give it a pejorative. They're, they're extremely valuable to every organization. But, you know, there's a higher level of turnover, but it's been very, very challenging um, for real estate companies to backfill and, and get the quality staff that they need. And so we keep talking about, you know, okay, well, fine. Is that a, is that a secular issue or is that, you know, sort of going to be a permanent go forward condition? I don't think anyone knows the answer, but more, more, more of a concern that this is going to be a, a continuing challenge uh, for real estate going forward. And so thinking about process improvement, technology enhancements, you know, how do we, how do we deliver our brand promise to our valued customers and get some of these messy humans out of the equation, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not sure anyone is, um, is, is, uh, is really experimenting with uh, Roombas uh, cleaning our office corridors, but, you know, that may be coming. But um, I, anyone on this, uh, on this webinar, you know, has gotten fooled by an AI bot, right, in the last <laughs> six months or so. But wow, is that a human or is that someone real? So real estate companies are, are you know, virtual tours, uh, touchless this and that. Artificial intelligence is a way to deal with some of the more mundane tasks um, and not have to hire as many people to do those things. I think that's, a, that's an important strategy that, uh, that companies have got to get their minds around. One, one additional thing in, in that vein of things keeping people up at night, I think, is this question of the difficulty of deploying capital right now. Right? Like this is something that's top of mind for, for a lot of real estate organizations. Coming into March 2020, we were at the tail end of the longest economic expansion in history, in, in U.S. history, and there was there were record levels of capital, dry powder, sitting on the sidelines waiting to be deployed. And of course, um, despite some prognostications early on in the pandemic, the level of pricing reset that we saw was relatively minimal, particularly in um, you know, the, the asset classes that are still desired today. While there's been more pricing reset in sectors like retail and office, outside of that, for the most part, um, the in terms of the capital markets, the pandemic registered as a relatively minor blip. 
that's a little, you know, a little bit of an overstatement, but, but for the most part, it was, it was a relatively minor impact. And so as a result, there was not, there weren't the distressed opportunities for that capital that was sitting on the sideline to really get, um, to get poured into investments. And so we're, we're sitting here now, you know, 18, 19, 20 months since, um, since the first days of the pandemic with still really substantial capital out there wanting to be deployed into real estate really booming equity markets. So for, for many institutional investors, it increases the allocation, you know, as they're rebalancing their portfolio, it increases the need to put money into real estate. And so as, as we sit here today, all of that is coming at the same times as relatively robust economic expansion, right? And so we're in, we're in this period where finding deals is oftentimes very challenging for companies and, and defining, in particular, finding deals that make sense given their economic requirements. It's it's easy to deploy the capital, Eric. It's just hard to deploy it and well, get a return. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's it's interesting that we care about. <laughs> you, you both uh, you both just touched on I think elements of one of the questions that came in. Charlie, firstly, talking about some of the things you see in the boardroom around inflation. Uh, Eric, just now about allocation and, and capital deployment. So we do have a question, and, and maybe it's just elaborating a little bit. But how do we think about reconciling the push and pull between that inflation and risk of rising interest rates versus that wave of capital and or capital is kind of sitting on the sideline and pivoting into real estate? And what does that look like from a, a cap rate uh, perspective as well? Yeah, well, if if you subscribe to the Peter Lineman school of of, you know, uh, of cap rates and capital markets, you know, he, he is a big believer. And I think I am as well that, you know, cap rates are much more about international flows of capital than it is necessarily interest rates. Um, so um, the tsunami of capital that Eric mentioned that is you know, dry powder sitting on the sidelines, um, increasing allocations uh, of, of capital to real estate. I mean, that all, that all tells us that, um, that, you know, the, uh, that cap rates are likely to remain low, even if there is some increase in interest rates. Now they're not completely untethered and borrowing costs, uh, you know, certainly has an impact on, on returns and, and an, an investment thesis. So you can't ignore it, but I think it is more about capital flows than it is necessarily about inflation um, in interest rates. I think that's right. I think we, we as an industry overuse the ten-year Treasury spread chart um, as, as a you know as a you know graphical representation of where cap rates are relative to the ten-year. And I think um, in instances like this, where the the major capital flows that Charlie mentions are maybe moving in an opposite direction as as the ten-year Treasury because of the unique inflationary pressures domestically, um, there's there's a mismatch. Now, ha- having having said that, though, I mean, I think the risk. Of you know uh, of in of rising cap rates is m- much higher than continuing <laughs> uh, you know declining cap rates right but, but we were also sitting here you know uh, you know two years ago saying well cap rates couldn't possibly go lower and then they did um, and so you know that was driven by the you know capital flows into real estate as well as you know practically zero uh, you know interest rates so. It's it's it is interconnected, but um, uh, again, if you if you if you look out over the next couple of years, um, there will be no shortage of capital infused into the real estate industry, and and you know at at a high level, that's a good thing for us. One, I think we have time for one last Q and A. Uh, I'll try to keep it high level. Although it's a pretty philosophical question, so we'll see if we can address it quickly. But 
one of the inquiries that came in is why does a well-run company that's already achieving its financial objectives and goals have to grow to be successful? Or I guess the question is, does it, or does it have to die? Um, so that's, that's a big, I think it's a big one to end on, but maybe we can get a perspective from each of you really quickly. Yeah. Do you want to start that one? (laughs) Uh, Sure. I mean, um, uh, you know, again, I think a company that is not growing is is stagnating. It's not making new investments in in people and processes um, and is not a company that is um, you know, in inquisitive <laughs> um, and, um, and and innovating, which I think is you know critical to success in, in the business. Um, and look, no, nobody lives forever, right? You, you need to have a robust plan of succession throughout the organization. And the only way to attract uh, you know uh, young, talented people into your organizations is to demonstrate that there is a growth path for them. Um, so. Um, that to me is is the most important factor uh, in terms of growth, uh, and we've got plenty of you know fam- family run businesses that have just been kind of milking the portfolio, and and many of them are at risk of going out of business. So that that would be my answer. Yep, it, it, uh, I would underscore that it's a competitive landscape, right? And it's a competitive landscape for labor, for like for talent, human capital. It's a competitive landscape for capital, like money capital, financial capital. It's a competitive landscape for opportunities, um, and across each of these um, these worlds, right? Whether you're competing for for the best talent to bring into your organization or you're competing for capital, the growth story is really important. Um, I think there's an added element of the importance of scale that Charlie mentioned and alluded to earlier. That's increasingly a part of our conversation. So there's an added element of just the the benefits of scale and the efficiency that provides. But setting even that aside, purely just on a competitive landscape perspective for each of those categories, growth is an important part of the story to sell. That's a good note to end on. We could probably keep talking plenty. And so I'm going to say thank you both to Charlie and Eric for participating, joining us today. For those of you still here with us, a reminder, the webinar was recorded. It'll be available on the website and shared uh, anyone who signed up. And if you haven't signed up for our publications, be sure to visit rclco.com to get all of our continued thought leaderships and analysis and, and, and advisors that we're publishing. And lastly, of course, if you have any specific enterprise level questions or challenges, anything that we touched on today resonated with you, please reach out to myself, Eric, or Charlie. We'd love to talk with you, uh, discuss some of the things we're seeing and find an opportunity to be a resource. So thank you again to everybody for joining us. Thank you, Charlie and Eric, for for speaking and take care, everybody. Thanks, Thanks, Josh. Bye, everyone. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. If you're interested in learning more about RCL Co., Go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.